Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. While much is made of Wales's poorest border, often too little attention is paid to the myriad places that make up the 160-mile Welsh march that stretches between Wales and England. From the D estuary in the north to the 7 estuary in the south and everything in between, the Welsh march is rich in its own history, culture and politics. As perhaps our most famous border event kicks off in Hay, home of Hiraith member Kerry, we are joined to talk about our borderlands by Mike Parker, former Plaid Cymru candidate and author of The Greasy Pole on the Red Hill and All the Wide Border. Hello, Mike. Hello there. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. We've also got Dr. Sarah Louise Wheeler, who is a poet, literateur, and artist from the borderlands of Northeast Wales. She writes the column Ogororai for Bardas Welsh Poetry Magazine and is co-host of the Doctoriaid Cymraeg podcast. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you. Wonderful. So as we're talking about the border, would you both be able to tell us a little bit about your own personal connections to the English and Welsh border? Sarah, do you want us to start off? Yes, so I've always lived right on the border. I was born and raised in Wrexham in uh, northeast Wales. And throughout my childhood, I, throughout my entire life, I, I've crossed the border almost on a daily basis. I uh, was in the senior national um, squad uh, for swimming uh, when I was uh, 13. So I was very good and it was looking to be my career at one point. And for that reason, I would get up at half past four, uh, be driven to Chester um, across the border, swim there, have a shower, come back, be driven uh, to Ascomorgan Llwyd in Wrexham. Uh, and then I would go back after school and then come back after that. Uh, so uh, that was every other day. And then the other days I just didn't go in the morning. So I crossed the border twice a day, uh, a lot of the time from my teenage years. Um, and, you know, Chester is where a lot of people go shopping from from North Wales. It's not a thing. You don't think, ooh, I'm crossing the border. You just go. Uh, and then I went to university in Liverpool. And I did my PhD there as well. I was crossing the border constantly to go back into Tlangothen, where my parents lived. And uh, then I met my husband and he had a house 2.7 miles from the border in Ness, in the Wirral. And that's where my house is. Uh, so as you can see, yes, constantly crossing the border. Love it. Mike? Well, yes, I mean, it's not, I've not been doing it quite as uh, frequently as, as, as Sarah, but I mean, I grew up in Worcestershire, in Kidderminster in Worcestershire. I live in Powys. And I guess the, the, the borderlands were always, you know, growing up in North Worcestershire, the borderlands were always my kind of blue remembered hills as A. Houseman, who was another North Worcestershire fella, um, put it in a Shropshire lad. And so there was always this sense of then, of course, you know, for the last 23 years, I've been living in Wales. The last 30 years, I've been writing about Wales, first with the rough guide and stuff. And it's always felt like a line that I know because I've crisscrossed it so often. I've lived half my life on one side, 40 miles one side. I've lived, I live my life now kind of 40 odd miles this side. The interest is a, is a thing to write about. I mean, the, the book that I've just published, All the Wide Border, with the subtitle of uh, Wales, England and the Places Between, was me spending four years on the subject of the border, looking at it as a line on the map, looking at it as a, a line through 2,000 years, at least, of history, as a line that goes through myself, like a the lettering on a sticker rock, and, and through many of us as well, as, as Sarah's just been explaining, but also as a line through the kind of concepts of Britishness, really. So that was all the original intention. But then, of course, the pandemic happened as well, and suddenly it became a line that really roared into life. So it's all of those things. So that's what I've spent the last four years researching, doing, travelling, thinking about, talking about, reading about. And I've got to say, I thought 
with the history that I've got of being, you know, sort of so much one side and then the other, I kind of thought I knew quite a lot about the border, but my God, this was a, a voyage of discovery doing this book, yeah? It's amazing, the border and the borderlands. So, Mike, picking up on your book, you're not the first to write about the border area. The borderlands have spawned numerous creative talents. You know, I'm a particular fan of Raymond Williams in the South, a bit of a cultural phenomenon. Owen Shears has picked up his mantle from that area. Further north, we've got Wilfred Owen, the famous war poet from the Oswestry area. Have you got any particular literary inspirations when you were travelling the border? Oh, loads. I mean, people like G. Williams up in Flintshire. Everything I think she's ever written has been infused by a sense of the border because she she grew up in Saltney, which is that uh, strange suburb of Chester that is in Wales. You know, whenever the journalists want to go and find a, a do a border story, they go to Saltney or they go to Clannamunek, where the border goes right down the main street, you know. So, uh, yeah, G. Mary Webb, I've got to hold my hand up. Very, very unfashionable choice. Mary Webb was the one that uh, Stella Gibbons pastiched so cruelly in Cold Comfort Farm, that sort of style of, of writing. But I love her books and she captures that. She's Shropshire to the to the marrow, but she's she's got a lot of stuff that travels around the border and it really captures the, the essence of it. I think it's an area that's really informed and uh, excited a lot of writers. I mean, everyone thinks of things like Houseman. I mean, there's parts of Shropshire you can't go to without being assaulted by a Shropshire lad. You know, it just grabs you and, and won't let go. Despite the fact that Houseman only went to Shropshire about two thirds of the way through writing that collection, he'd never been there before. He described it as a, as a Shropshire of the mind, but it became the kind of totem for, for, for that area. And for that sense of longing and that sort of sense of a misplaced, sort of lost something that the borderlanders often stood for. And that's very much in, in, in a Shropshire lad. And the, and the writings of Kilvert, which, you know, Shropshire lad became the great success story of the First World War liter in literature terms and Kilvert's diary that of the second. So, you know, when times get tough and we're at war or there's great recessions or, you know, think pe people are in a tough time, we often reach for the literature of the borders, amazingly. Sarah, have you got any particular favourites from the, the northeast or further down the border? Well, um, Heidi Houston, I've uh, just finished writing a chapter about him. He's obviously a Welsh poet uh, from Rhosan Hrigog. And uh, Brian Martin Davis, obviously he moved to the Borderlands, but he was a poet who, uh, he wrote very lots of things about Wrexham and Wrexham football and things like that as well. And I just to say also, while I'm thinking, uh, I hate to be a cliche, but me and Dr. Kamraga go into Saltney for our next pod um, because we thought that would be, because we've been doing the whole Borderland thing. So that's actually that our next stop. So uh, yeah, that's my way of sidestepping my uh, lack of literary prowess next to Mike Parker. Of course, Mike Parker, that's, he's one of my inspirations. I think we've all been like, Borderline book, you know, the, the shop Kummel in Oswestry, they obviously uh, are very delighted by your book. Um, they had it there when I went there to drop my book off, uh, Trowiad Seizure. Oh, that's brilliant. No, I mean, Shop Cullum gets a mention actually in the book because, of course, I mean, I was particularly fascinated in my research in the places that are sort of when the line was drawn in 1536, you know, it's nearly 500 years old, of course. You know, some, it was probably some clerk in the Tower of London who drew the line 500 years ago. And so inevitably, some places ended up on the wrong side of the line. And, and Oswestry is a fine example of, of somewhere that, 
is so sort of emotionally, culturally, and spiritually Welsh, but it's it's in it's in Shropshire. So um, there's a there's a fabulous uh, YouTube video actually worth watching when they interviewed uh, back in 1972 when they were moving the county boundaries around, and and a TV crew went to interview a load of Oswestrians to do vox pops on the streets about whether they wanted to uh, be moved back into Wales because that was an option, and, and a good half of the people they spoke to thought that the place already was in Wales. See, that's the thing, though, isn't it? Yeah. But being on the border, there's loads of places that I thought were in Wales because they just felt that they were. Uh, and then other places had never really occurred to me to think were they in Wales or not. I've done a lot more thinking about Wales and England as an adult than I did as a child. It was all very fluid. It was just we're from the borders. If we pick up on the border there, Oswestry Street is a, a really interesting part of that kind of March area. And, you know, you mentioned 1536, Mike, and... But the march, as it once was, went far away into England, and it's, it's a very nebulous kind of area. And it's only really with modern kind of borders and administrative lines, and it was that 1536 one which really put something in place, but the border's been settled. But they really are kind of quite a complex issue, and it's probably more we're looking at things more in a cultural vein and language and how that worked on the border, do you think? Yeah, I think so. And I think you're right about the marches being a being a very sort of baggy concept. And I think there's there's although you know that that hasn't been in legislative use that concept of the marcher lands for well you know since the, since the Middle Ages, there's a sort of hangover of it still now in that kind of bagginess that you get in some places, some parts of Herefordshire, some parts of Shropshire, Radnorshire, Breconshire, Monmouthshire. They all have this sort of slight um, elasticity. Of, of kind of connection to them. So they feel allied to each other. It's that sort of turf, really. But I, I felt that one and the same time, I got the sense that the line was hardening, as in, particularly during the pandemic, of course, it was really visibly hardening. I went to interview Ben Gwalkmai, the, the, the poet who's from Welshpool, and he said, you know, he, he came up with a great line, which I used a lot in the book, which was, the march is thinning, i.e., you know, both sides are becoming much more kind of aware of their... Uh, which side of the line they're on. And I think that's true. I can really see it in places like even Hay, actually. I mean, I noticed in Hay, which has never felt terribly Welsh, but when I first went to Hay 30 years ago to do the Rough Guide, you know, all of the Welsh books in the bookshops were tucked away in the dusty back corners, you know, in the badly lit uh, bits where, you, you, you know, you just start sneezing from contact with dust. And now the stuff's in the window. The Welsh stuff, the Celtic stuff is 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 front stage. Likewise, Chepstow seems to be a lot more kind of Welsh now than it was when I first went there 30 years ago. So so what I'm saying really, I suppose, is that I think it's both hardening and and the march is thinning, as Ben said, but also it retains that sense of kind of bagginess that, that Sarah's been describing and that sort of that crisscrossing nature. And that's a good combination, in my opinion. I, I, I agree with that. I think that line that Ben's given you is, is spot on. And as a uh, initially a Welsh historian, and I looked at the the march, particularly around Hay and the old kingdoms of Agunag or Archenfield, they are changing. Although South Herefordshire still is very Welsh, but we're every year farms will change a name or a field will change a name. You know, we're very conscious in Wales of anglicisation of Welsh names, but the marches area have lost an awful lot. Sarah, is that similar to the northeast or other parts of the border you're aware of? To be honest, Wrexham is. It didn't feel terribly Welsh when I was growing up. 
There was. Someone was telling me in the South Seren, there was a move at one point to try and have Wrexham not be a part of Wales. And that's actually quite a recent thing. Um, but I've experienced people saying things at various events where I've introduced myself in Welsh and then in English. And then they said, we need to think if we are an organisation from uh, Wales or from England. And it, they were they were Wrexham based and it was really like, well, you don't really get to decide that because you're in Wales. But on the other hand, you know, I was just thinking now while Mike was talking, we went down to the Forest of Dean and I've been looking at Dennis Potter's work quite a lot since we'd watched The Singing Detective. And then so we went to a mine while we were down there and we were listening to them telling us. And uh, I thought, because this feels very much like Rosanna um, Krigog, where my dad's family are from, uh, including they have the red clay. They have the same red clay because there's a coal seam, apparently, that runs down the, the borderlands. And that's what creates the sort of similar geology. And then I, I read The Changing Forest. And so many things that are culturally similar from the northeast and around, because there's so much coal around Rawson and Krigog, it was such a rich mining area. And then, of course, so then you had like the brass bands and a lot of the culture was very similar. So I suppose for me, I was looking at that and thinking, well, it, even though it wasn't in Wales, it just felt so similar culturally. So I don't know. I am fascinated by the Forest of Dean. It is just this mad place apart you know it's on the kind of welsh side of the river seven on the english side of the river why it's the dennis potter described it as that the heart-shaped place between two rivers you know and you know yes i mean you're right i had made that connection with ross and around there but also you know it reminded me of parts of the valleys because you've got you've got the silver bands you've got the rugby it loves its rugby it even holds eisteddf foddai in the forest um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. No, but, you always... know, it feels, because the landscape is similar, but they also have a really distinctive dialect, which, uh -huh. of course, Trollson Krigog is famous for, but that's a Welsh one and there's an English one. It's a kind of kinship, I think, you know, and I really saw that in various places. And, yeah, and I got, I mean, in in my research for All the Wide Border, I got, I went, I, I, I watched everything of Potter's that I could. And, of course, you know, I mean, we've all seen it, I'm sure, but, I mean, it's really worth watching again. Another YouTube recommendation, watching that final <laughs> interview of his with Melvin Bragg, you know, just month, a month or so before he died. The, the absolute truths of a man looking death square in the face. It's astonishing. Dennis Potter links to the, the forest has passed me by, so I will have to look into that. And, uh, you know, it is a fascinating area. It's on that, that marcher side. And, and although you, the current border is where it is, I still go by the Humphrey Lloyd border of the 1560s <laughs> and the seven and the, yes. um, so, but the, the Forest of Dean, you know, the main, just the other side of the, the Y there, you've got Monmouthshire, which has its own kind of identity issue or used to have its own identity issue in Wales. Do you find much of that, Mike, in the, in the book? Very much so. Monmouthshire, I was doing a reading in of the book in Monmouth uh, the week before last. And uh, there's a lot of towns, the, the towns that lie on the line, either side of it, you know, like places like Hay and Prestine and Kington and Knighton and Oswestry and Bishop's Castle, and, you know, all these sort of places. The fact that they straddle a, a boundary gives them a real kind of edge and an, and an energy, which I think is very, very appealing. Monmouth, I have to say, if, if they, if all those towns are sort of, the best of England and Wales in the sort of in the best of Britain, if you like, as a kind of merger of the two, then the, the Monmouth is kind of the UK incarnate. You know, Monmouth, it's all kind of military and it's Nelson, it's Henry V. 
it was much more military than I remembered actually and the sort of identity of the place and it feels like the, the sort of you know so so when I was there the other week it was absolutely awash with coronation stuff which is you know fine each of their own and all the rest of it I mean I've done I've done readings on both sides of the border up and down the line Cheshire down you know Manchester down to Chepstow and it's just been so kind of interesting to see the responses to the same stuff and in Monmouth it was quite chippy it was quite not hostile but it was sort of yeah chippy a little bit sort of uh, and people were and I talked to quite a few people when I was doing the research in that area and I found that the same that doesn't necessarily constitute the rest of the county of course but it, it still does have that kind of weird um duality to it I mean you still you know you occasionally get people in Monmouthshire I've seen it myself there was a whole hoo-ha the other year wasn't there about putting bilingual signs at the, in the village of Rockfield and and, and people were going and spraying the Welsh out, you know, in a sort of weird, weird echo <laughs> of the, the 60s activists doing that with the, with the English names. Um, and that happens a lot, but only in Monmouthshire. So I think that whole history of it being, you know, Wales and Monmouthshire, of it being neither on one side nor the other, which really was only a kind of, you know, that was because of the court circuits. There, there were four counties in every court circuit. And and sort of Monmouthshire had to be kind of landed with the Oxford court circuit. So, you know, it was it was sort of a legal thing rather than a than a geographical thing or a political thing. But it became a sort of an identity that they still rather hold to, um, for better and for worse. But it, you know, it's the English Democrats stood in Monmouthshire, didn't they, in one Senate election a few years ago? I remember that much. They got about four hundred votes or something. But I would love to see them canvassing around Tredegar or Ebervale or Bargoid and going, you know, you're English, you know, you are, uh, you know, Pobloch. I was listening to Mike just then talking about Dennis Potter contemplating his own death and that line between life and death, because Eide Houston had a poem called A Duchwell in which he discusses what he wants to happen when he dies. And um, he, in fact, quoted his own poem in his will, saying he wanted his ashes scattered um, on the panorama in Llangollen. And there's a huge stone memorial to him there. Um, and it's interesting maybe tenuous but to think well these are two great literary people from the borderlands who both spent a lot of time contemplating their own death before dying so uh, that sort of borderland between life and death i don't know <laughs> whilst we're on the topic of life and death and borders uh, i think we're all fairly familiar with that famous david cameron speech which called off his dyke the life but the line between life and death wow did he yes um you know, as you know, as well as the perception of the Welsh government's handling of the COVID pandemic being different to uh, the English government or the English UK government in England, um, yeah. but the border has been sort of political and legislative reality since the Sunday closing Wales Act of 1881. But how politically significant do you think the border is in the modern day, Mike? Oh, very much so. I mean, I think you know it. It it, it sort of zooms in and out of focus over the centuries i mean it's a very long-standing thing you know this thing's been there for two thousand years at least and i've had people say to me oh it's only because of devolution or it's only because of covid that suddenly people are talking about it well you know no once you start digging into the history of it it ebbs and it flows in and out of of focus i mean at one point i think i compare it to an electric fence you know and when you you know, when you put the kind of clamps on the electric fence and sort of charge it up and it roars into life, it becomes it becomes a thing. And then you take the clamps off and and it just becomes a quiet little old fence again. And I think the border is a bit like that. You know, and obviously COVID was a time when when the voltage was was turned up some. But it's it's a fair, it is very much a political reality. I mean, I think 
it's evolving it's changing as it always has done and, and where it's going i cannot say but it's definitely going somewhere we're talking about the covid in the border during the lockdowns that border felt very real and, and i think since the loosening restrictions do you think we've sort of returned to a state of business as usual again now? Do you think that these countries feel less divided or do you think there's still that air of division? I don't know if I'd call it division really, but just accepting that there's different, there's juris- yeah, there's sure. different jurisdictions, you know? Um, and I know I don't think it's gone back to normal and I don't think it's going to go back to normal. I think that was a, a sort of an epochal defining change, actually. Um, and there's a lot of sort of backtracking from the lessons of the pandemic now. I mean, I think a lot of people are in a state of denial, if I'm honest, and don't want to think about it very much. I think it changed everything, you know, and it cha- it made a lot of people think hard about which side of the line they were on and which side of the line they they wanted to be on. And, and I was doing a, doing a reading last night in Church Stretton, a nice little... Shropshire, quite wealthy, quite a lot of people who've moved there for the lovely walking and and you know, by the Longmind and all this kind of stuff. And I was talking about this last night and just said to the people there that, you know, that, and there was great agreement amongst a lot of the English audience there, you know, that, you know, saying that the, the Welsh government for all the mistakes they undoubtedly made, top of which is not having a blinking inquiry into what they did. You know, I was so much happier to be on this side of the line during the pandemic than I was on the other side of the line. There was no suitcases of booze being wheeled into Cate's Park, you know. And that really got a response in this Shropshire audience last night. Um, and, and people saying, yes, we were quite jealous of what seemed to be a much more considerate, that was the word somebody used last night, considerate. People in Wales seemed to be more considerate towards each other during the pandemic. And that had been noticed in, in Church Stretton. I'm intrigued on your opinion of this, uh, Sarah, because obviously one of the biggest contentious issues we saw on the border during the pandemic was um, the fact that when England went out of uh, lockdown but Chester FC's football stadium was technically in Wales <laughs> that was hilarious they, they you know they were basically not able to play do you and, and this sort of boils down to the question of tensions do you think that it, whether that be between people living in Wales and people living in England that their border became an issue of a point of tension on either side just because people started to see, they re- realise the slight difference between those two countries that they may never have seen before. So whether that be someone in, in England wondering why the Welsh were so cautious or what, someone in Wales going, you know, what's going on over there? Why does everything feel so not unsafe or what have you? People used it to back up their own arguments uh, and their own sort of general viewpoints on stuff. So, I mean, the Chester football ground thing was hilarious because they even... The uh, person who owned it was actually trying to get them to move the border at one point. They, they they asked, could we not move the border? But the whole point of building their stadium on the border, as I understand it, was so that they could have cheaper taxes because obviously Flintshire had much cheaper taxes than Chester. Chester is a very affluent area. Flintshire traditionally has not been. Um, but I live in the Wirral here and you would not believe how many people have a little house in Anglesey or in Parthmatic. And the amount of people, I spoke to people, you know, people who I see on my daily walk, I go power walking, and like they were so kind of bitter that they couldn't go to their little house in Anglesey. And they were framing it as people being anti-English. And they were saying like, but I spent 70% of my time there. And so they were obviously trying to, they obviously thought I was good because they know I'm Welsh as well. So they were trying to go down the route about holiday homes. And it made me so mad because it was like, it's not about that. It's about infection control. What are you thinking? 
Of course, you can't go to your little holiday home. You know, you've got a beautiful home here in Wirral. It's not like you're living in a slum. It's just that you happen to have two beautiful, gorgeous, very expensive homes. You know, it basically just intensified what already was in their very prejudiced minds about why Welsh people might not want them to cross the border during a pandemic, for heaven's sake. Um, but here's a sort of more jovial thing. When I was doing the Wales Coastal Path stuff, I bought the books. And the first few pages, you learn that essentially the Wales Coastal Path begins in Chester. That's how you access the beginning of the Wales Coastal Path. It's actually where the D is, is in, in Chester. And that's so you walk, you have to go into Chester to get to the source of the Wales Coastal Path, which was obviously a tempting idea for me. I thought that's one of the things I'll write about. And I have got a poem coming out with uh, Arachne Press about the source of the Wales Coastal Path and finding the Wales Coastal Path by walking through the sandstone city with all the Latin and things and all the sort of echoes of uh, Roman times and then getting to the Wales, beginning of the Wales Coastal Path, which is a massive letdown, I must tell you. I'm sure they've made a lot more efforts in other bits. They don't even have a proper sign. It actually is still the D Coastal Path and it will be finished in 2015, I think it says, and it's just like, right. And then you toddle along the little strip of tarmac and all the sort of post-industrial, like really strong smell of, and the water's very cloudy. And then you get to um, the little sign, little tatty sign on a piece of wood that looks like it's about to break in, welcome to Wales. And uh, and then you see the Halkinstones, which they make a big fuss of in the book, saying it's it's bring, it, it celebrates the beginning of the Wales Coastal Path with a bit more ceremony. There's like two little Estethvod stones, little mini Estethvod stones at the side <laughs> of the tarmac and that's it. So uh, it, it's it's fascinating. I did laugh quite a lot. I was walking along there with my husband and he was saying, you've picked the least interesting part of the Wales Coastal Path. There's these <laughs> bits over here, that all these fabulous birds and by Flint Castle. And I was like, but I want to, I'm from the Northeast and I, I feel like I really should, this is what I want to do. And obviously it's connected to the River Dee goes right the way around Wrexham, if you see. So it's always been everywhere I go, it's all always been near me. So I wanted to do that bit, but uh, that has been quite amusing. The Wales Coastal Path starts in Wrexham, in, in Chester. I think that's my line in the book is that it's uh, the, the beginning of the Wales Coastal Path there, uh, you know, because it's ruler straight, just recedes into distance. It's tarmac, ha has all the charisma of an airport travelator. It sounds like we we need to do a, a pod on the coastal path. I don't know if you're walking that soon, Mike. And while while we're still talking on the border, Mike, in your book you do say that Offers Dyke looms far larger on the the emotional horizon for the Welsh than it does the English. Can you can you talk us through what you what you meant by that? Well, it was Emmett Humphreys, wasn't it, that said in the in the Taliesin tradition said that um, you know the the Offers Dyke. Uh, kind of inculcates a bit of a siege mentality uh, in Wales, and I think that's probably true. It's 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 old enough and venerable enough to act as a to to, to make people feel like yes, this is a real border, and yes, you can see it. And there's this fourteen hundred year old earthwork that shows, uh, you know, just how sort of how definite it is. But at the same time, it kind of does act as a bit of a, a bit of a, a pen um penning us in and of course on the other side from the english side it's 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 just one border of, of many i mean the, the best the best line on that really comes you know of course harry webb when he said in his poem didn't he that two-line poem you know what wales lacks and has always what wales needs and has always lacked the most 
is instead of an eastern boundary, an east coast. Um, and I think, you know, that, that kind of fits with that, really. But yes, I think, you know, the Offers Dyke, you hear a lot of people talking about, you know, people talk about it in, in, in Welsh and in English going, you know, Dros Clough, um across the dyke. Um, you don't really hear anybody saying that uh, in England, to be honest. So it, it definitely is a bigger deal for this side than the other. Yeah, the, the dike annoys me no end because the, the office dike path goes through hay. Yeah. And pe- people assume the path is the border, but it's not. Office dike actually goes a lot further to the east in Herefordshire, and the border was the Y for much of uh, southern Wales. But is it, there's this idea that the office dike path, which is well inside Wales, is is the traditional border, but it's not. And but Sarah, the, the path, I don't know it so far further north. But it goes into Flintshire, so it's in, uh, not the path, the actual dike is inside Wales, isn't it? Is what I just asked Mike about that kind of emotional view towards the border, stronger in Wales, is that something you recognise for the northeast? We were discussing before and we began that, obviously I went to Oscar Morgan Lloyd and Oscar Bod Hyfryd, and being in a Welsh language school in the borderlands, there was a constant being reminded of the Welsh language being, um, you know, under threat and what are you going to do to support the Welsh language? And to the point where you kind of felt this huge responsibility, there's a great poem called um, Astid, and it's that Astid who'd come across in Shara Cymraeg and Hymri, so the Welsh person who speaks Welsh in Wales is an exile. And uh like that resonated with us like growing up there because you constantly felt you had this responsibility um for the welsh language and and, and such and there uh, for some maybe but on the other hand as i was saying like you know we were supporting the um the world cup the english team when uh, the year when gary lineker and gaza and all them were playing and we, we we did a project at school about about the world cup and i i can't quite marry those two things i don't know what was really going on do you think that would happen now sarah do you think uh, you know in in your old school now they'd be doing i i, I can't imagine that it would really yeah i would have thought so but then again what i i think is most of my experience are marred by confusion confliction sort of like things that don't quite make sense uh, and that's a part of that borderland experience you know in some things very very welsh in others not at all um and uh, certainly you know i read some things about ur cymru i keep being told that's not how ur cymru would say it and i'm like what are we in the borderlands and what are we in wrexham if we're not ur cymru you know I'm a welsh speaker my family are welsh speakers but apparently i don't say things the way ur cymru would say them um so it's kind of like feeling welsh but not welsh enough my nine my grandmother and my her sister Mandy Gladys would constantly say it's not it's not proper Welsh that we speak because they were from Rawls and they would constantly be telling me this that their Welsh wasn't the proper Welsh uh, because they'd been told their Welsh wasn't the proper Welsh so it's that kind of confusion going am I Welsh am I not Welsh it's not the proper Welsh I have to learn school Welsh because it's best not to pick up my family Welsh because that's not proper Welsh and my mum was even challenged in she learned Welsh and could travel to college because she'd married a Welsh speaker and uh, she had my father would be talking to her in Welsh and she went in using some of his dialectical words and was told you had that for a mim, that's not a word. And she'd come home and say that. I remember this one showdown at the kitchen table where my mum was going, they're not words, Ray. 
And my dad was just sat there really like looking, just didn't know what to say. Because obviously to him, he didn't go down the Grazda and Agamraig. He didn't go down the sort of really Welsh route and things. He always worked in England because he worked with computers and things like that. And he travelled a lot. And so to him, he'd never really thought that much about his Welshness and his Welsh language. And so he was now faced with being told that his Welsh was not Welsh by someone in the college who was teaching Welsh to his wife, who was from Wrexham, but what wasn't from a Welsh-speaking family. So to be honest, I think my entire life has been spent trying to make sense of that in terms of my Welshness, and I'm still not there yet. <laughs> still trying. That's that's the other thing about being a, a border borderlander is is there stuff that will will go with you to the grave, you know, and that's the point almost, you know, they're, they're sort of unresolvable <laughs> dilemmas, which, which I think is one of the really lovely things about it. You know, there is there is no def, definite answer to any of this stuff, you know, it, it there's no perfect answer. It's it's about ambiguity and, and nuance and contradiction and, that, and that's the thing to be celebrated. Thank you both so much for coming on the show this evening. Before we go, I've got one last question, if that's okay. Um, Mike, at one point in your latest book you talk about the concept of political turf wars between England and Wales and how these seem to have only intensified since the advent of devolution can you ever envisage an end to these do you think they're just as natural as siblings fighting each other or and if they must come into an end how do you envisage that happening no they probably won't because I mean any 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 adjacent territories you know there's an element of of that uh, happening over various things, I think I think we, we we're still shaking down. I mean, you know, Wales has only had a, a legislation of its own for for twenty five years. You know, it's it's still really early days. And as I sort of write in the book, you know, England under the guise of the UK, you know, because that that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it is often a, a synonym. Really, Britishness is still still so much a synonym for kind of greater Englishness. You know, England does have to kind of get over itself in, in this regard, you know, and I think that's a long way to go yet. Um, but I'm, I I think it's shaking down nicely. I was very encouraged by what I saw from the people on the border, a very pragmatic, a very accommodating sense of where they were, which side of the line, and more accommodating on the English side of the line towards Welsh devolution than I was generally uh, anticipating, if I'm honest. So... Yeah, I, I'm quite optimistic, actually. I think that things are moving in some quite interesting directions. Zara, politically, do you think that England and Wales are destined to exist forever as sort of battling siblings? Um, my views have changed a lot on this quite a lot, really, since I was younger, because I was 18 when um, they had uh, the referendum. So I was legally able to vote, but wasn't really quite sure what was going on. It wasn't very clear. And uh, I spent a lot of time. I ended up doing my dissertation, undergraduate dissertation, on the drowning of the Truerum Valley and the rise of nationalism in Wales, culminating in uh, the call for devolution after something I had read in David Wigley's autobiography. And I interviewed him for my dissertation. And uh, he later came to Liverpool as part of like a, an ongoing thing with Liverpool City Council about that. I don't know, because I thought I very much saw it as a sort of language and identity issue back then. As a Welsh speaker, of course, having gone through the schooling system, I felt like, oh, this will be a good thing because it will protect the Welsh language. And I looked into all of the stuff around Gwynver Evans and things in the past. Whereas it's it's so much more complicated than that, isn't it? And, uh, you know, then it depends who's in power in the, the, the Senate and such as to what then they 
uh, will actually implement, uh, particularly with regard to the Welsh language. And then, and then some of the stuff at the moment around like wanting to turn all the Welsh, all the schools into Welsh medium, um, and the fact that Drakeford isn't going down that line. And I agree with him because. Uh, I think that certainly wouldn't wash in Wrexham. So I don't know. It's it's really, it's such a complicated issue now in my mind. Perhaps Mike is again further along the line in terms of his understanding there, but I feel really quite conflicted about it now. Um, where before I was very sure, now I'm not so sure. I, I think it's, um, and our sense of identity and things is changing uh, all the time. And obviously now I, I live in England. Yeah, I definitely think it would be an awful shame if the Welsh language were to die out because we now stop defending it or stop trying to keep it alive and then revitalise uh, and such. But whether political um, uh, changes are necessarily the way for that to go, we may very well have reached a crossroads now, I think, where there are very many different means. So even people like me and Stephen who have very little social capital at the beginning of our lives are able to influence uh, things by just creating a podcast and sharing our views and and things like that and speaking in Welsh. I mean, he's completely self-made. He, he's written so many books that are helping people learn Welsh. And you think maybe my energies are going to be more into that rather than the sort of bigger picture and people influencing at the top, uh, I guess. Well, thank you both so much for coming on this evening. Um, if people want to hear more from you, well, one, where can they get your books? And two, where can they find you on Twitter? Uh, Mike? Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Mike Parker Wales. Um, no gaps or slashes or dashes. Uh, MikeParker.org.uk website and books available at all good bookshops and a few crap ones as well. There's no such thing as a crap bookshop. Uh, they're all uh, fabulous uh, anywhere that has books um you can find me at seren siwena uh, so seren is the welsh word for star and then siwena is the um unfashionable planet in Asimov's foundation uh, there's no daps, that gaps or dashes in that and that's twitter and instagram and uh, i'm also obviously the doctoriate Cymraeg can be found on spotify and all the associated platforms that i'm only just learning about now uh, you can find trawiad seizure uh, the best place to buy that from is shop Cullum in um, oswestry uh, you can also go on their website you can buy it from their website it's cheaper if you buy it from one of the shops. Uh, so you can also buy it in Shop Siwan in Wrexham in Tipaub, uh, Shop Assistant in um, uh, Mould. You can buy it in Palace Prince in Carnarvon, um, Shop Elvire in um, Rithin, and the shop that's in Denby, which is called Shop Cluid. Uh, and there's one on Anglesey as well, Icheldre. Or you can go to Amazon. It is on Amazon. So thank you again so much for coming on both of you and if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening please don't forget to find Hereith on all the socials at Hereith Pod go to our website www.walespolitics.com and thank you very much for supporting us with your ears but if you would like to do so with your wallet you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash Hereith Pod thank you for listening to Hereith if you like what you heard please don't forget to subscribe rate and review